0: Hello. Hello! I'm Georgia. And I'm John. And today we're going to talk about the Mac and Cheese and Movies. Mm. Comfort Films Podcast! Season 2. Hi everyone and welcome to episode 71 of the Comfort Films Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about the 1975 Sidney Lumet film, Dog Day Afternoon, starring... Oh, oh. oh gosh! Who let the dogs out. Oh. Ho, ho,
1: ho. That was a missed opportunity <laughs> in this film, you know? They should have had that in here.
0: This is a great movie that we both love. About um, dogs? No, there are no dogs in this movie, except maybe at the beginning.
1: Ooh, there should have been a chow chow. There's
0: a Doberman Pinscher snuffling through garbage Aww. in the opening of the movie, but that's all the, the only dog I recall. That's
1: just, that's acting. I think he was given, like, a good meal.
0: That was actually Al Pacino. <laughs> oh. He was playing the Doberman as he well. fully dual transformed role. himself. It was a dual role.
1: I, I mean, it's impressive. <laughs> it's impressive, you know? I can no, see it. No, it's
0: actually Daniel Day-Lewis. No so.
1: way. Yeah. That's amazing. He
0: disappeared into the Doberman-Pincher role. He lived as a Doberman for six months before the movie.
1: That was like his prep for Gangs of New York, right? <laughs> yes.
0: Yes. Exactly. Okay, I get it. Oh, uh, but this movie uh, stars Al Pacino and John Cazale, who I, uh, mispronounced his name last week. I did too. I did too. I don't Just know if like, it made it into the cut, but I it's blew glossed hard. right over that. But yeah. it's, it's Cazale. I've practiced many times in advance of this this episode. <laughs> We love this guy, and this movie probably is my number one reason, even though I'm guessing everybody else would probably go Fredo um, from The Godfather. For me, it's all about Sal and Dog Day. I love him. Sal's such
1: a good character. It's amazing. And, you know, there isn't that much in terms of the dialogue, but what he brings, again, it, the nonverbal acting, I feel, is where you can really see the talent. You know, yeah. and we saw that last week in Heat.
0: Yes. You know, and then
1: we see it this week again in Dog Day. Yeah,
0: Sal's face is just uh, so amazing. Like, Kazal, in every frame that he's in, just brings, like, this hang dog kind of sadness. And I just love it. I think it's so right, you know. And it's it's interesting as a foil and also as a support to Pacino's performance um, and, you know, I said it last week, is like my favorite actor of all time, probably. Um, I know I'm not original there. A lot of people probably say that. I'm with you. I'm and, with I you. I mean, well, Sidney Lumet said it in his commentary that he thinks Pacino could be like the great actor, you know, and and if anything... Dog Day just proves that to me. Um, 70s Pacino was like top, top Pacino.
1: Well, Serpico, their other outing, yeah, I mean, that's very high for me, too. It's I mean, fantastic,
0: you know, Serpico. I was like, oh,
1: Serpico, I never know with Al Pacino.
0: Every time I watch another one, I'm like, oh, it's this one, <laughs> you know, it's he's too good, it's how good he is, he's yeah. too good, he really is, yeah. And you know, in this, he gets to just do all of these different temperatures and just different things, and it's really cool. Um, So, this actually is based on a real-life event. This movie was shot, like I said, um, in 75. It came out on Christmas of that year. Wow. Um, But it was based on real-life events that occurred in 1972. Um, And I did want to discuss that for a second before we move into the actual meat of talking about the film.
1: Oh, do we get potatoes, too?
0: (laughs) This maybe is like the appetizer. Then we'll have some potatoes scattered throughout. It is comfort films. I mean we did name this after food. Oh. So <laughs> yeah. we get mozzarella sticks then? Sure. That's your that's your starter of choice. It is,
1: with extra marinara, please. <laughs> okay. Thank you.
0: Um and yeah, so this is the third week of our crime series and we both felt kinda of funny doing crime movies. Right. Um, especially in a case where and this is the case with all three that we've done up to today where there is some element of real life uh, story in the film. That wasn't Um, planned. That wasn't part of our idea. It wasn't planned. And in fact, I have kind of vociferously avoided um, doing movies that have like a real life element because um, to me, it's kind of difficult to say, Hey, this is my comfort film. When it's about a real life person who may have gone through a traumatic experience or been killed, you know, or something like that. So it is difficult um, to make a case, I think, for that being a comforting film. And we do have a case here where... um, spoiler alert at the end of the movie uh, one of the characters is shot and killed and he is based on a real life person so the last thing that i would want to do is be disrespectful to family or friends or somebody who knows that person by talking about how i just love to watch you know this effigy of their family member or friend be killed over and over again Um, there is, you know, a little bit of a difficulty in that for me because I try to be really sensitive to people. But um, I think what happens for you and me um, generally when we have a comfort film is that we love the movie for many reasons. And in this case, performance is one of them. Um, The story is one of them. There's a lot of things in this movie that I really love. Well, it's a
1: collaborative effort once again. It brings us back to what we saw with Goodfellas, Mm -hmm. you know, which is great. You know, Sidney Lumet said he's not a big fan of improvisation, but when they actually were working on the film during this three week rehearsal process, What he said was, you know, you guys can, you know, use your own words as long as you keep the intention. You know, it's the same scene, it's the same structure, but he cut them loose to use their own words to express themselves. And, you know, these improvisations were so successful that Lumet actually had uh, the boom guy come in and record it. And at night, both he and screenwriter Frank Pearson would review it. And then a script would be made which incorporated these improvisations. So when they actually came to the final shooting script, it was a combination of Frank Pearson's original script along with these improvisations. And actually when they came to the shoot, I mean, there were improvisations there once again as well. We had some unplanned moments that did really pop out. I mean, talking about Kazal, the genius. Four out of the five films that he was in in his life were nominated for Best Picture. One of his, like, most brilliant moments is in this film when Al Pacino asks him what country he would like to go to, and John Cazale says Wyoming.
0: Which was unplanned. Yes, totally unplanned. it almost blew the take Mm because Sidney Lumet almost, well, he did start laughing and immediately covered his mouth to stop. Um, but <laughs> it's too good the, the reason for this improvisation even though it's not a Lumet staple is that he was so determined to stay naturalistic and also you know there's a lot of reasons for that but I think a big part of it is because he was very committed to telling this story because it was a true story and in addition to that um, Bregman who was the producer Marty Bregman um, he had gotten this story from a Life magazine article about the true life event. And there is a whole situation here with the main character, Sonny, who in real life was named John Woodowitz. Um, part of the reason that he was doing the bank robbery was to pay for a gender affirming surgery for his wife um, in this uh, movie called Leon in real life, a trans woman named Liz Eden. And they were attempting to make a film about something that at the time in 1975 was definitely not mainstream and treat it with a lot of respect. So there's a ton of respect from the producers, the director, the actor, for the real people involved in the story to try to tell a story as real as possible as naturalistic as possible, they use you know natural lighting for the outdoor scenes during the day. You know there's there's so much here um, that we'll definitely dig into, but I appreciate that they came from this, came at this with respect for the real people. It's
1: impressive, especially for the time, and yes, that was yeah. that was the biggest thing with bringing this information to the table is they wanted to tell the story, not make it a joke, not have it be. Some kind of weak punchline, not have some joker at the movie theater, start, you know, spraying some gay slander. It was approached as a relationship Mm -hmm. and it was approached with love. And it's very well done because in the film, Sonny is a character that is just like the eternal patriarch. He wants to please everyone. Yes. He wants to make everyone happy. And he has a lot of love. You know, I mean, it's complicated because, you know, we do hear from Leon that he goes into a rage. He has anger when he speaks with his wife. He has anger with her. So it's like we we see, you know, the other side of this person. But what we see most is love. He wants everyone to be okay. Yeah, and
0: happy, you know. Yeah, he wants Leon to be happy. Leon yeah. has like gone into uh, Bellevue um, for psychiatric treatment because she's having such a hard time. And, you know, what the character of Sonny is looking for is to get her the surgery so that she can be who she is. You know, it's it's just a really well done. And what else I want to say is about this true crime element that... You know, I have uh, an affinity for true crime anyway. Um, This is something I think a lot of people have, um, millennial to late Gen X type people. And my theory is that it's because of Unsolved Mysteries. You know, we grew up watching that show, oh, yeah, and watching all those these true crime stories. America's
1: most wanted. Yeah, I you mean, know? that was yeah.
0: such a big thing when you and I were like early teens, mm-hmm. um even to mid teens. And I think that that is why later, you know, in the here and now, and in the last ten years or so, people are always listening to True Crime podcasts and reading True Crime being very interested in that type of story. Because there is kind of a weird comfort in that, based on us loving that stuff when we were kids.
1: Well, and there's really a documentary angle, and that's what Sidney Lumet wanted with Dog Day Afternoon. He did not want to use any music in the film. Yeah. You know, we have one song, that's Elton John's and Marina that begins the film. You know, it's incredible. And that's something, you know, that begins, you know, it's non-diegetic. It's for us, the audience, to enjoy this montage and, you know, it's hilarious that the way that that came about was that uh, the editor, Dee Dee Allen, who is incredible, she's
0: unbelievable. She's <laughs>
1: edited so many things. She edited The Hustler, She edited The Breakfast Club, She edited The Missouri Breaks with Marlon wow. Brando and Jack Nicholson. I could go on and oh on. Oh, my God. Yeah. So this is like a very, very respected editor. She is fantastic. And when she's editing it, you know, her and Lumet, you know, she'd put on this Elton John record and they'd be listening to Marina. And it was really just as a placeholder. And, you know, Lumet decided, Lumet decided he didn't want any music. So there, there was no music. So they pulled the music out of this opening montage, you know, of just this, this heat, battered city and they missed it they missed the song so they put it back and the way that they made it you know part of the film is that they actually changed it over to become diegetic music because it's on the radio you know when the guys are outside before they go in to rob the bank um you know and that's just one of the many things that they did to keep it you know real they didn't use uh, any lighting during the day The actual uh, bank building that they chose had a white face, and they did that so that they could shine lights off of that at night, and it would reflect.
0: And they were using, like, these police floodlights, basically, which aren't, like, movie lighting. It's just that, but it worked Mm -hmm. because it was real, you know, And, and that was Lumet's commitment to the stories, that he just kept wanting it to be as real as possible, he, he felt like if a score came up and this orchestra started playing yeah. in the middle of the film, that it would take you out of the reality of the situation. And I think he does a great job. I mean, we see, you know, the actors deteriorating oh, you know, yeah. over the course of the film, you know, when, when the police cut off the air conditioning and they're just Oof. sweating to pieces in this building. and. You know, the the women's hair is kind of falling, you know, down in the bank and stuff. And it's, it's just really smart filmmaking.
1: Well, Sidney Lumet also made 12 Angry Men, and he said that during that, he learned himself how to make sweat. Mm-hmm. He said it was a mixture of water and glycerin, you know, that he would use so that it would hang and you wouldn't have to change it from take to take, and it looked really good yeah he didn't
0: want the continuity to take you out of the story
1: yes and he also this is another one when they cut the power okay when you cut the power you know there's like a backup generator and these emergency lights came on and they actually use that again in the film it's really smart it's it's just all these pieces make you feel like it is an immediate moment like this is happening this is a breaking story it's fully contained because all of the extras outside were actually actors.
0: Yes. Yeah. Well, they weren't all. There were about 300. Mm-hmm. And then as people would come home in that neighborhood at night, <laughs> they would become part of the crowd. Yeah. Which made sense because, you know, through the course of the film, later in the day, you know, the crowd's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Because this is supposed to... Um, mimic, you know, the real thing that happened mm-hmm. and it was kind of a TV sensation yeah. because it was one of these kind of summer days when nothing is happening and uh, suddenly this thing, this event is happening and it becomes a media circus. It becomes just a circus in person with all this crowd showing up with more and more police just coming out like it's a clown car. Yeah and everybody is stressed out and nervous and doesn't know how to handle it so you know the crowd really becomes kind of a, a character in the film you know that's causing people to react a certain way or encouraging you know behavior from the police or from sunny um, and it's it's amazing
1: well reality and fiction is blurred outside Because they had real police, and then they had people playing police. (laughs) Now, the people playing police would sit down in between takes and eat sandwiches and have cigarettes and take a break. And the actual police, you know, said to Lumet, look, you know, uh, if you could make sure that they, you know, are standing up and they're on guard. Because, you know, when you're on duty, you don't do that. And so he told the actors that were playing police that, and they stayed standing. And also, yes, all the people in the neighborhood that would come home at night, all these actors would just act like there's something going on at the bank. They're like, I don't know what's going on at the bank. You know, we should find out. So you'd get all these people whipped up. So they really created a media sensation.
0: Yeah, they were like coaching the non-actors. Yeah. like And Lumet just was really happy about it because he said he never had to like come out there and do anything about it because it was just... People were handling it really well on their own. Even in
1: the mix, they said they have it separated. So the left side of the crowd outside and the right side of the crowd outside are in their respective speakers. So the left side's on the left, the right side's on the right. And it's just, it's so immersive. That's, That's what impresses me about this once again. And when the media coverage, when the news shows up in the film at first, they're everywhere. They're, like, getting these shots right at the door. And this actually mimics the real-life event, because they said at first, you know, there there was no order. You know, these news crews were just charging in and getting these shots of this real-life, you know, robbery hostage situation that was unfolding. Yeah. You know, and, and like, and Lumet actually got, you know, uh, real news stations, you know, so you could see that. So, again, it was when you watched the film, you go, oh, my God, this is like a real <laughs> news station. You know, we have helicopters coming in. There was, like, one helicopter above another helicopter, and he was so proud of the shot. He's like, oh, this is a helicopter above a helicopter. You know, he's like, I wasn't up there because I'm terrified of heights. I, but... I, I,
0: I respect that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 the I do, same too. I love, I love shooting, but I would never want to be up in the helicopter. <laughs> I'd be like, I'll pass on that part. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I I love it. I love that. I think that it comes across really well. And, you know, again, back to what you were saying with, like, the script kind of being rewritten around the words. Mm-hmm. The actors in the bank were wearing their own clothes. Yes, yes. Like, they weren't, you know, wearing costume. They were wearing their own clothes. Um, and it just really makes it feel very real. You know, I worked at a bank for years. Um, And I have to say, like, you can back me up on this. How many times do we go to watch a movie that's set in a bank and I just am, like, yelling about it immediately (laughs) because something's driving me crazy. The biggest problem I generally have is with safe deposit boxes because the bank can't open a safe deposit box unless the person who owns the box is there with their key. We don't just sit around at the bank having, you know master keys to open up your safe deposit box that's the whole point of having a safe deposit box is that it's inaccessible unless you bring your key and at every bank that i worked at if you lost your key we actually would have to call a locksmith to come and drill out the lock to get access and you'd have to pay for that i mean it's like it's not like somebody's just going to come in and pop open the safe deposit boxes. And you don't see that in this, okay? I mean, Sonny comes in. This is supposed to be a simple robbery. He has been told by somebody that this is the delivery day for the money, right? But he, that person was wrong. It's actually the pickup day. So the, the armored car has been there earlier today to pick up the money and take it back to the central repository. And so there's only, like, $1,100 or something ridiculously low. Tiny amount of money in the bank at this time. And uh, he doesn't just go start jacking open the safe deposit boxes, because you can't do that. So I was so happy. All he does is take the traveler's checks and destroy the register so that they'd be, like, untraceable. And I was very happy with, like, the reality of that, because... I'm not joking. I You do not want to take me to see a movie where there is a bank robbery occurring because I just get so pissed and I've ruined many a watch of one of those movies by being annoyed at the non-reality because it takes me out of it. I mean, you know, you're watching a movie that's supposed to be real and tension filled and I can't be tense if I'm just, you know, annoyed at a factual error.
1: Yeah, I mean, when you know something, when you have that skill set, and then you see something in direct opposition to that, yes, I fully understand you. I fully understand you. I wouldn't be able to sit still through something like that either.
0: But yeah, I was a head teller, so I really love that character played by Penny Allen, um, who kind of is taking care of her girls. You know, that was kind of my whole deal when I was a head teller also. Um, so I you know, I just I thought that came across really real also. Um, and, you know, I love how over the course of the film the people in the bank kind of have a Stockholm syndrome happen with them where they start, you know, relating to Sonny and caring about if he's okay, you yeah. know. Um, it doesn't really happen with Sal as much. Because... Well, Sal's
1: ready to kill them. Like Sal says, you know, yeah. are you serious about you know throwing bodies out the door? Because I'm I'm ready to do that. <laughs> oh my god, yeah, you
0: can't really get close to him there. No, but no. This is what's perfect about Sonny and and him being like this people pleaser, right? Because every per- you know, everything that goes wrong is because he's trying not to make anybody mad. Like, you know, he's like he's he's irritated. That the kid at the beginning, Stevie, doesn't want to stay and do the robbery.
1: Stevie just saying he has bad vibes and he has (laughs) to go. That is hilarious. Well, it's situationally hilarious. That's what's so good about this movie. And again, I think that's what adds to the comfort for me. Because I can't help but laugh because the moments ring so true. The ending is a crushing blow. And like when we get to the part where we're going to the airport... Oh, man, it's like I kind of just I just want the movie to fade out, you know, on the ride. And, you know, it's just like Sonny Wurzick now lives in sunny Hawaii. You know, like I don't (laughs) do what I mean. Like I want it to work out and it's difficult. I mean, you know, because Sonny, you you really do care for him. You know, when he says at the beginning, he goes, look, I don't want to hurt anybody. I'm a Catholic.
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, and I mean, the women don't want him to lock him in because they, they have to go to the bathroom. And he's like, all right, all right, you know. And that's another funny Cazell part because he's like, oh, now they all want to go. You know? <laughs> he's so annoyed and it's so real. But that that's another part of the naturalism that all the humor in this, which is there is a lot, resor- results from real life situations. It's not like forced. worst. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really well done. Well, they
1: um, actually have the one teller. She's actually playing with Al Pacino's rifle. Yeah. She's trying to learn military maneuvers with the weapon. I mean, the clip has been removed. But still, I mean, as the movie goes on, Pacino just leaves his rifle on the counter. Yeah. You know, it's just like there there isn't any threat anymore. It's like they're a team. Yeah. They're together.
0: Yeah. And I mean, they, you know they feel for him when they when they first find out what's going on with him and they find out that he's gay it's kind of a big shock you know for everyone that happens about halfway through the film because they've gone to know him and everything and you know you feel that they kind of immediately want to be judgmental but then you know he kind of has a reaction to that and it's you know they they kind of have to stop and think about You know, where's that reaction coming from? And then that they know him and he's just a real person and it makes them look at him like differently, but then not. Well,
1: he's a bigamist. I mean, he has two wives. He has his wife that he has children with. Mm -hmm. And then he has Leon. You know, he's got two separate marriages. And I thought one of the pieces that was very interesting was at his marriage to Leon that actually his mother was present. Yes. So it's a very interesting dynamic with acceptance. I mean, it it feels light years beyond, you know, 1975. Now, I I wasn't born in 1975. I was born in 77. But, you know, this type of, of awareness and understanding, I don't feel, you know, came
0: until much later. I fully agree. I mean, by today's standards there is a lot of there are a lot of issues here there's like dead naming by having the character be named leon um and everyone calls leon he so there's a lot of misgendering but you know it's never done in a stereotypical or ridiculous way and it wasn't something where in 1975 people were even necessarily aware that this was a real thing you know, and I think that they treat it pretty respectfully. Um, and I am impressed by that. I mean, I am a hat person. So, you know, this isn't something I've had to personally deal with in my own life. And, you know, you and I always try to be sensitive and everything. But I think that for 1975, this is impressive.
1: It's very impressive. And I thought Chris Sarandon's performance as Leon was strong. And what they said is when people would see it in the theater, again, there was fear that people would just mock, be judgmental, have a closed mind. But they weren't. They they embraced the character and they actually laughed at, you know, some of the lines from Leon that were funny. When he actually talks about, you know, Sonny's parents being a train wreck, they said, you know, people laughed and people were on his side. And it really does read as love and nothing else. There's nothing Mm -hmm. sensational about it. There's nothing fantastical about it, which I like so much about the performance. And then, you know, the heartbreaking scene where Al Pacino actually reads his will before he goes outside. Now, this was something we learned. That is the actual will. These are the actual words that were in the real person's will. And... Oh, my God. It, you can tell he loves both of these people that he's close to. He loves them both dearly. He
0: does, yeah. And Lou Matt was extremely um, sensitive, and it was extremely important to him to have this scene work. The fact is that he and Dee Allen had gone in and cut this movie down to where they thought it was as lean as it could be, and so when they watched it through, he noticed that when it came to the Will scene... It felt like it slowed it down too much. So he actually went back in and added six or seven minutes into the movie so that the pacing would be more like stop and go so that when it got to the will scene, it didn't feel like you were bogging it down because he wanted people to give it the attention it deserves.
1: Yeah, I I mean, it's a very fast-paced film. I mean, I don't ever feel, again, I never feel uh, that I'm... Aboard or looking at my watch, I, mm-hmm. I'm fully engaged in this film, and I, I mean, if anything, the, the time evaporates, and I can imagine, you know, if if you were in this actual robbery hostage situation, it would be much the opposite that every second would feel like days, and that's really one of the big things that I feel with Al Pacino's performance that he really brings out. I mean, one of the very interesting scenes that that we heard about, the way it was shot, again, it's, it's the two phone calls that Al Pacino has. He has a phone call with each one of his wives. And Sidney Lumet thought that the best way to do this would actually have Al Pacino do these two calls in immediate succession. You know, no break, just go. But... Okay, these two phone calls together equaled 14 minutes. And in a film reel, there's only 10 minutes. So Sidney Lumet devised a way where they actually had two cameras that were set up. And so that, you know, the second camera would run when the first one was just about out of film. And there was like a scrim or or something they had up so Al Pacino wouldn't see the crew changing the film. So they went through this entire process. So they went to the second camera. They were finishing it up. And while they were finishing up with the second camera, the crew had actually reloaded the, the first camera. So when Al Pacino finished, okay, it's like Sidney Lumet, you know, pokes his head over the curtain and says, Al, we're going to go again. And the actual reaction of Al Pacino to that, uh, you could see in the film, which is amazing, because you can tell, oh my God. And, you know, Lumet said the reason he went for the second take was the performance was brilliant, both times, brilliant. And also he had it set up so that the actors could hear each other. It was an actual conversation, which adds so much. But he said the exhaustion, was what needed to be there. And when Al Pacino went through the second time, he was so tired, you know. And and this is late in the film. This is really his goodbye to the loves of his life.
0: Yes. And, you know, what makes that even more poignant is that he gets so pissed at his first wife on the call because she just won't shut up and listen to him. And he ends up, like, yelling at her. And, like, he, you know, this is him trying to do the right thing and trying to be his best, and he still can't do it. And it's just really sad. And Lumet said that, you know, because Al Pacino's very, like, method, that when he would be, you know, in a certain mood for a scene, he kind of stuck to that mood all day. So if he was doing, like, an angry scene, he was just kind of whipped up into being angry all day. Where in this case, it was kind of a despair scene, he was kind of in despair all day, which made it really, really difficult to have to shoot it multiple times because he had to stay in that mindset.
1: Yeah, I mean, Al Pacino did not even want to take this role. And it wasn't because that he thought the script wasn't up to snuff. He thought the script was incredible. But he just didn't want to be so worked up every day.
0: He was tired. He had finished The Godfather 2, I think.
1: Yeah. And, and, I mean, that's I mean that's a massive film. And, and I mean, in terms of the, the casting, what's really interesting there is it was supposed to be that Sal w- was like a
0: teenage kid. In real life, the, the character of Sal was like 18 years old, I think.
1: Wow. And so it was like, okay... You know, this is, this is what we have, and they were trying to, to cast it. And Al Pacino was like, why don't you get John? Why don't you get John? And Sidney Lumet is like, this doesn't fit the description at all. And so he did read him. And Sidney Lumet said after he heard two lines of what John Cazale did, it was like, okay, the part is yours. Yeah. And the way that they played it, Pacino and Cazale, is like they didn't really know each other. You know what I mean? It was just like they were figuring things out about each other as they went through, and you know they were both just perfect bumbling criminals. And like, they were
0: at the top of their game. Yes. the two of those guys at that time. I mean, they had done Godfather two together. They were friends in real life and worked in theater together. I mean, this was like, you know, I read in some at some point that Pacino said that. Cazal was like his acting partner and he felt like he could have just kept working with him forever because they just worked so well together. And he learned so much from John Cazal and they just really loved each other and respect each other. And it comes out so much in this movie. Yeah.
1: There's so much trust. There's so much trust with the choices that are made. And with John Cazal, what they said was so interesting is that he would always come up with a much different choice than than what, you know, the average Joe would think of. So it would really keep you on your toes. Like Al Pacino said that what would happen is when he was working with John is John would already be in character, and he would just start talking to Al Pacino and just kind of like almost ease him into the mindset of his character.
0: And into the scene. Yeah, yeah. And then eventually, you know, in this back and forth, he would like interject the actual line, you know that they were that was from the script and so it would just kind of organically grow out of this impro- improvisation that they were doing together and I think that was another part of Lumet casting Casal in this role not only was he a huge talent in his own right but also what he was able to do with Al Pacino elevated both of their performances so it was almost like you know they are greater than the sum of their parts when you put those two together
1: yeah it 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 was the comedy that came again situationally from the two of them you couldn't ask for anything better because they had rehearsed this for three weeks as we talked about but when they actually got into this bank set you know after stevie leaves you know there or, or he's about to leave stevie's about to leave there are these columns you know, and yeah. it's this goofy thing where like Al Pacino's trying to talk to John Cazal, but he's like on the other side of this column. And so it's like this goofy bit with them moving around. Yeah. And it it's just it's so well done. It's so well done that you just don't yeah, again, you don't question it. And no. you have Sidney Lumet, his previous experience with Al Pacino, was Serpico. And, you know, this is a character that is, a, again, real-life person. This is a police officer that will not back down, has integrity, believes in justice. That is what's paramount.
0: We could have easily chosen chosen that movie this month. Yeah. Because it's another great, you know, crime-type movie.
1: Yeah, it, that possibly could be my favorite film of his, My favorite performance of his. It's so hard. Like I said, it changes every time I watch something. Him and Dog Day, it's electric. It's in the air. You know, when he actually, when Al Pacino takes the rifle out of, like, the roses box in such a clumsy way. And that
0: wasn't intended either. It just happened, and he leaned into it. Instead of, like, giving up, you know, because he wasn't looking cool. Yep. You know, he just kept going because it was in character. This guy isn't a professional. He's just some guy who has, you know, nothing going for him. Oh. And needs money. I mean, like, that's, you know, they address that here. You know, he when he's talking on the phone to the interviewer on television, you know, that guy's like, well, why are you doing this? You know, and he basically explains, like we don't have options. Like, you know, what kind of a job do you think I can get? I'm not in the union. I don't have a union card. Well, you could get a non-union type job. And then he says like, what, like a bank teller? How much, you know, how much a bank teller makes? And then he turns around to the women, you know, and they're like, yeah, (laughs) because they know they don't get paid much, you know. And that's the whole thing. Like, this is a guy who doesn't have options. There's no health care available, you know, without being expensive.
1: Well, I also like that he says to the interviewer from television what do you make in a week Yeah, you know what's your salary
0: (laughs) he really hangs it back on that guy and the guy's
1: like oh no this is about you you know let's let's stay focused on you
0: and i love what he says he's like well you're getting this entertainment from me so what do i get from you you know like he's he's not letting up and i love it that's good but yeah that's the thing this is at the end of his rope he doesn't have money he doesn't have you know health care for his wife leon He doesn't have, you know, his lifestyle is, you know, put down and ridiculed. Um, And this is a guy who just wants everybody to be happy, but nobody around him is happy. Like, look at Leon. Look at his wife, his first wife. Look at his mother. You know, these are miserable people. And he has been wrung out trying to keep these people happy.
1: Yeah, he just doesn't know how to interact with these people, I mean, his father's played by Dominic Chianese,
0: who was yeah. Uncle Junior on The Sopranos. Yep,
1: and it's, it's like the father just completely disowns him, you know, and the mother, you know, says as much.
0: And I'm assuming that's his sister, and the the other person in that scene, at their house. And she just thinks it's ridiculous and hilarious. And it's just like, oh, you know, it kind of feels like, oh, Sonny's screwing up again. Let me sit back and watch, you know. Siblings. Yeah, like, Siblings. Just,
1: yeah, right? yeah, it's just, ah, uh, here we go. You know, It's, it's very challenging to just see this person because you know that they're not going to win. And, and you want them to win. You want it to work out. Yeah. You want everything. You want the family to reunite. You want them to have the money that they need, you know, to help their family.
0: But he's just a born loser.
1: Yeah, it's terrible. It, and that's that's what's so crushing about the film. This is that what takes it beyond, well beyond the feeling of comfort. You see, what's so impressive, and it actually, you know, I'm paraphrasing a line in the film... You know, Sonny's like, look, you know, I'm doing all this on my own. i got to keep them happy outside. I need to keep you happy in here. There, There's no one else helping me. It's just me. And, you know, he pushes the ball really far. I mean, when they actually, the first time I saw this film, you know, when they got to the airport... I was like, holy shit, are they actually going to go the distance? I'm like, I, I knew nothing about, you know, the actual story or what no, happened. I didn't either. Right? And I was like, is this going
0: to happen? Are they going to make it? Well, they're so close. Oh, my God. So that's, close.
1: That's what kills you. That's what kills you about it is that they are... So close, you know, and we actually have, you know, Penny Allen, Penelope Allen, who plays the head teller, as you mentioned, she actually, with her husband, Charlie, actually housed Al Pacino when he was younger, when when he was an actor before he broke big. And so it was like they had a family thing going already. And when they did that final scene at the airport after John is shot and Al Pacino, you know, they disarm him, you know, the people are supposed to run. And Penny Allen said to Sidney Lumet, you know, I love him. I'm not going to leave him. And so, like, you know, they only had one night to shoot at the airport. It was very difficult to get the clearance for it. So the two of them were arguing about it. And what Sidney Lumet ultimately did is he had two police officers literally drag her away and bring her to the other side, which worked, which was perfect. But it was like this real Stockholm syndrome, like you mentioned. You know, it was like very much they had this this feeling. And it is a film, but it really feels like a play. It has the unity of yes. a play. It's a team effort. You know, it, it's like a very fine piano. Every chord is perfect.
0: Well, it's funny, you know, I actually didn't remember that LeMet had done 12 Angry Men, but it makes so much sense because that's another movie with a bunch of sweaty people stuck in one room together. <laughs> you know, like and it's very theatrical you know and in addition to that like again we talked about this last week that it's great to be friends with al pacino because like that's how michael t williamson like he got into the movie because pacino and Mann said you know we we are mad that you didn't get nominated for forrest gump we yeah. want to put you in this movie and Pacino got a lot of people into this movie. So besides Cazal and, you know, there there's all this group of people in the bank who kind of, uh, I think somebody, it may have been Sidney Lumet and referred to as kind of the repertory group of Al Pacino. It's like his group of people that he works with normally. And then Charles Durning also, who is amazing in this. I love Charles Durning's character. Uh, Moretti. And
1: it's incredible the exchange that he has with Al Pacino (laughs) when it's like people are trying to come in the back door and you can tell that Charles Durding, the actor, is at the very end of his rope and it really plays in you yes. know, with the character because it's like <laughs> this live improvisation you're fighting with al pacino on film you have all these extras around you i mean this is a very high stakes yeah. moment you know you're really going for it but when you watch that scene oh my god do you ever feel the tension it
0: is so tense i mean it, it's really just well done and lumet said this isn't something he normally does he's A script guy is not an improv guy when he's shooting. Yeah. But with this, he wanted to throw Pacino off and also kind of have Durning, like, really on tenterhooks, too. Mm -hmm. So he just told Durning, you know, just, you know, come at him him when he comes out the door. Like, you know, I want you to say something to him that is going to challenge him. You know, and it starts off the scene where they're just like, Pissed at each other. <laughs> Derning is just cussing up a storm. It's hilarious. That's,
1: that's how you can really tell. It's just like the end of the line. It's just like, oh, okay, we're going to do this. Yeah. Like the number of F-bombs in the one or two minute scene. Like... We're in double digits, easily. Like, they just can't stop. And neither one of them is backing down. No. You know, it's like, again, it, it reminds me again of, like, some of the animalistic characteristics of the characters in Heat. It, it's just like you got these two gorillas charging each other. Well, you know what I mean? Like, they're ready to just slap each other down. This is like the fight for dominance. It's and, like
0: a high status, low status. Yes. Like Taken to, like, this crazy level where, you know... Moretti is trying to be, like, high status here and get control of the situation, but uh, Sonny will not allow it. No way. And he establishes dominance again by the end, so, but it's a real push and pull, like, because Moretti doesn't want to give that away. No way. Well, it's,
1: that's what gets very interesting is when we actually have the change, when we get, you know, the actor James Broderick yes. on the scene, who is actually the father of, of Matthew Broderick. Which I
0: did not know and did never know would either. have guessed. Because nope. they don't have any similarity physically to each other that I can see.
1: Not that I can see either. And it, it was, this guy is so stone-faced and deliberate. It, it's like, it, it kind of reminds me of R.D. Call. You know, how okay. he has like that, you just see his face. You're like, oh my God, this guy means business. Well,
0: and he's like the FBI and yeah. he wants to take control which, you know, that this is all the drama that's going on outside the bank, right? Like, the cops are trying to keep control, like the uh, NYPD, and then you have the FBI who's coming in, and they really want to take it.
1: Well, he, from the beginning, from the beginning, James Broderick lets you know he is running the show, because Al Pacino's telling him to stay put. And James Broderick just keeps walking forward at a measured pace. He just keeps walking forward, let me into the bank, let me see what's going on. And he goes in and he sees everything that he needs to see. And you know when it switches from Moretti, you know, when we come over to the FBI with James Broderick, it's a whole new ball game.
0: It totally is, and he totally puts Sonny off his game mm-hmm. when he leaves the bank. By just saying, oh, we'll take care of Sal. Don't worry. You've done oh a good God. job. You know, and, and it throws Sonny Ox He's like, w- what? He doesn't get it. Right. He doesn't understand. Like, he's trying to protect everyone. Yep. He doesn't want anybody to get hurt. He doesn't want anybody to get killed. Even the hostages. He doesn't want any of that. He just wants to get out at this point. Because this is not what he was planning. Like right. He was not intending this. He thought this was a simple job. Go in. Get the money. Leave. Even from the beginning, when he's first, you know, in the bank, he's telling people, oh, we're moving right along. It's going to be in and out, you know.
1: (laughs) And nothing's happening. Like, nothing's happening. We're moving along, folks. We're moving right along.
0: Yeah. 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 He's just (laughs) trying to convince himself maybe there. Right. And when he's trying to spray the (laughs) the cameras and he's too short (laughs) to reach them. It's a real comedy of errors at that point. Um, but, yeah, when, when the FBI comes in, these guys are different. These guys are not here to be your friend. No. They're not trying to help you. You know, Lance Henriksen, this was actually his first film.
1: Incredible.
0: And he plays, you know, one of the FBI guys who ends up driving the car that has... You know, the hostages and Sal and Sonny in it.
1: Another great face, Lance Henriksen. And such an unbelievable actor. It is so much talent.
0: And scary.
1: Oh, my God. Yeah, when he's shut off, when he's closed down, he can do that James Broderick thing. Like, it's very stone. It's very very cool to see somebody like that because this is a person that will not be moved mm-hmm. and you can tell and his face it's it's almost again it just looks like it's chiseled do you understand there's nothing you could do to this guy like i think you could hit lance henrickson in the face the shovel <laughs> and like nothing would happen you know what i mean i think he would just stand there and be like is that it
0: he would you have know? you killed with his mind only <laughs> like i mean yeah he's so good and i can't believe this is his first movie He actually auditioned for the role of Leon and says that he did a very poor job of it. Yeah, Sidney
1: Lumet (laughs) agreed. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, But, you know, as it was Chris Sarandon's first film, it was also Lance Henriksen's first film. That's, I mean, first films. Wow. I mean, that's (laughs) such a a big deal. (laughs) Chris Sarandon did a funny interview that we saw that's part of the special features on the disc. Where he was saying, you know, this is my first movie, and I just thought, Oh, this is amazing, and it's always gonna be like this. And and it was never like that again. But uh, you know, he was just to have that as your first experience working on a film and he got nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Yes. Pretty sweet, pretty sweet moment for Chris Sarandon.
1: Well, and with Chris Sarandon, the first thing I always think about is Princess Bride, which we talked about so long ago. Yes at this Humpernick. point.
0: I mean, he doesn't even look like the same person in this.
1: No. It, it's just that person, Chris Sarandon. I don't know who he is because <laughs> I've seen so much. I you know, I've seen both sides. And it's uh and I'm sure there's like eighteen more sides. I have seen both. I mean, they're again, this is a very, very <laughs> smart yeah, performer.
0: he's a theater guy, too. I think he's probably started out a lot of these people are theater actors. And I think that really uh, le- lent itself well to this film.
1: Well, the teamwork, you see, that's what's interesting is the teamwork that happens inside of the bank with the hostages, you know, and, and again, they're all of these pieces. Carol Kane, of course, from The Last oh gosh, Detail. No. And taxi and your Scrooge. favorite, film. right? Right, ever since I screwed up and could not remember, Carol Kane was in the last detail. I'm going to bring that up on every episode. Um, she was
0: also in the Princess Bride, actually. Oh
1: my god, that's right, with Billy Crystal. Yeah,
0: oh my god, that's funny. I just thought of that right now.
1: I would have blown that, and then you know what? Then I would have gone, Carol Kane of the last detail in the Princess Bride. <laughs> that would have been on our next episode, you know.
0: She's so good in this, and, you know, people think of her always as, you know, a comic kind of person. And there are funny things that happen with her in this when, you know, they uh, the cops have called the bank, and then they get another phone call, and uh, Pacino picks up the phone and starts yelling, you know, if you don't leave us alone, we're going to start throwing people out of here, you know. Right. And it's actually her husband who's called. And he calls later because I guess he can't take care of the kids himself. So he just keeps calling and asking what he's supposed to do for dinner and how he's supposed to do this. So he's like this helpless husband trope.
1: And then we see her just explaining everything to him. And I think that approaching it like a play. You know, was was just so intelligent. Yeah,
0: it was really smart. So
1: Sully Boyer, he plays Mulvaney, and it's like the bank manager. And he's like the father of the bank. He's looking after everyone. You know, in as much as Penny Allen is the head teller, is like the mother, Mulvaney is the father. And he really is trying to look after everyone. You know, he wants Sonny and Sal to succeed. You know, and yeah. as as just Penny Allen, they they're like, "Do you have a plan? Do you know what you're doing?" Like they, you know, and it's just like you need to get it together, you know. And I think at one point, one of them actually back talks, you know, the FBI, and is like, "Where are these things? You guys promised a lot, you haven't given them anything." Yeah. You know, it, it it's like I don't remember if they do it with Durning or they do it with the FBI, but still, it's like they're that invested in the situation. Yes. Yeah, yeah it, it's. You know, this is the type of film that I don't think that if I read the description, I would be jumping out to see. If you told me it's a movie about a real-life bank robbery, I'd be like, meh. You know yeah. what I mean? There's just, there's so much more It's the characters, underneath.
0: it's the people that really yeah. make it come to life.
1: Well, and every character is developed. You know, again, this is something like Heat every single character it doesn't matter the number of lines it just is the presence it's the aura that we're seeing of these folks and we're seeing this commitment to teamwork and that's that's what really brings it out so much you know it's this commitment to realism
0: yeah
1: and this film again it's we we talk about comfort we talked about a few times it is that this is so damn good. It that is. That this is yeah. a fine piece of work. This is like a fine painting that I can stare at. Is it tragic? Absolutely. But does it take away from its beauty? Not in the least.
0: Well, you know, it's funny because this is a 70s movie. And this I've talked about this with many people. All the way back to when I was a teenager and I talked about it with my stepdad because he would record movies for me to watch off the TV onto videotapes. We talked a lot about 70s film and he just talked about how every 70s movie was like a depressing movie. A lot (laughs) of hard films, yeah. uh, They shoot horses, don't they? I never saw that. Did you see it? Oh, Yes. Is it miserable? It's miserable. The 70s, I think, because the zeitgeist of the time was like this really depressing time, you have these movies like this that are depressing. um, And I've just, you know, I've talked to a lot of people going all the way back to Joel about 70s movies being super bummer. So when I first watched Dog Day Afternoon, which I don't think was until I was with you, um, I knew... That it wasn't going to work out at the end. I actually thought it worked out better than I expected.
1: They get so far. And again, I think that's what makes it all the more sad. (laughs)
0: Because when I'm watching a 70s movie, I'm automatically assuming that everything is going to be as horribly bad as possible. Because 70s movies were tremendous bummers. A movie that was up against this one at the Oscars and pretty much won every category over this was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Incredible movie. Which is a fantastic, phenomenal movie with tons of great performances, but it is also a bummer. Oh, yeah.
1: It's sad, but I think in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, the fact that Chief gets away at the end of it, I, I mean that brings hope. That that makes me feel good about it.
0: I get it, but for me, the fact of what happens to RP McMurphy is enough for me to like be like, nope, don't care. Like mm. because you see this person who is like the epitome of somebody full of life. Right. Is, you know, gets like the shock treatments and like is lobotomized basically for all intents and purposes. Right. So it's like a stunningly depressing film.
1: Yeah, and Billy Bibbit. That's oh, man. oh my I, god. Yeah, all right. Okay. Let's yes. not get into. No, we won't. Maybe depressing. Yeah, you know, so. it's very sad. <laughs> yes, I agree with. But you. I
0: have another friend who watched this movie late in life and was just like hated it because he was so depressed at how you know it ends. And I'm like, well, it is a 70s movie, you know. <laughs> and he then like would send me stuff on Instagram saying like uh, with videos of people talking about how bummer 70s movies are so it's kind of a well established fact that a lot of these movies from the 70s that are like dramatic films are depressing
1: well it's like post-vietnam and it's like you know we also have post-watergate so there's a lot of uncovering that happens in this time period
0: exactly and people just you know we're feeling different you know there wasn't like this positivity there was this kind of sadness and lack of faith in the systems. sure you know so that definitely comes out in the art of the time and this is no exception you know we have uh, we have the character of sunny i think is saddened at his life you know he has no opportunity and that's kind of a new thing here. He's talking about not being able to get this union job. And I mean, that kind of calls to mind things that people talk about nowadays that like, you know, oh, nobody wants to work. But really, it's that nobody wants to work for nothing. Yeah. And well, that's the same exact thing that he's saying. And he's like, it's not that I don't want to work, but you can't support a wife and kids on, you know, whatever he said, $115 a week or a month or whatever he said.
1: Well, and he's also a Vietnam vet. You know, he, he put his life on the line for the country. And, and this is the situation that he's come back to. You know, and I also feel that there is trauma stemming from that event as well. I don't think that his life was easy here before he went to war. But I, I feel that that certainly complicated things for him at the very least. And, yeah, it, it's hard. It, it's, it's a hard... Uh, it's a hard thing to watch. And again, it goes back to this Born to Lose thing. You know, it, it's... Oh, God.
0: <laughs> Which is great to say, because as you well pointed out when we were watching it, Al Pacino looks like Johnny Thunder.
1: Sure does.
0: And then and Johnny Thunder's has that Born to Lose album or song. He has the song. Yeah. yeah, the song Born to Lose. Um, yeah, so good one. Yeah. <laughs> And another thing about the 70s era, I think, also is that, you know, entertainment and things like this were changing. So not only do you have, like, movies going from being kind of uplifting or having, like, this uplifting message to being really depressing, but also, like, television news was changing. And this is kind of, like, at the outset of that, change where you know TV news becomes more sensational like now to the point where news is entertainment nowadays but at that time I don't think people looked at it that way it was just news it was just unbiased factual information but in this movie we have the circus of reality and it's almost like proto-reality TV and that's something that Lumet kind of references as well about how like he laughs about the concept of reality TV because how can it be real if there's a camera because <laughs> that changes the way people behave and he's right. Um, but and and we see that here. like the the idea of when um, Sonny comes out of the bank the first time and he starts yelling Attica, right, right and all these people in the crowd just start shouting it with them and they it gets them really whipped up and then he goes back inside and that's when he gets like the phone call from the interviewer and the news crews are shooting into the front of the bank um, with their cameras so that it's cutting you know back and forth between the news and this on-site footage so I thought that was a really interesting point that you know it's it's almost like turning into this news as entertainment and that was one of the first times that that was starting to happen because it really had not happened before
1: well and also in the actual story the news channel was playing footage of the actual wedding of john and liz and you know it's just like when i when i think about that it's like it's like i'm watching somebody's wedding like That just doesn't seem right to me. It's like...
0: Well, it was, yeah, it was like photos and, like, that was something that they had mulled over putting into the movie. Like, that, you know, the people in the bank were seeing that on the screen, but they felt like it kind of pulled you out of the film too much.
1: Well, and it's also, it's, I don't know, a a wedding... Like, I don't care if anybody watches our wedding video. There's nothing scandalous about it. But it's like, you know... I just don't understand. Like, if you committed a crime and, like, you're showing my first communion, like, what does that have to do with anything? Yeah,
0: it's invasive. Exactly. Invasive.
1: And it's, and I also felt like it was uh, an attempt at sensational news. And I felt like it was really pumping it up, you know, like, again, to use a very dated reference, kind of like the Maury Povich show. Or, or
0: TMZ. Right. Now. It,
1: exactly. So it was like, you know, let's just, you know, throw this out there so everyone can go crazy. And it it just, yeah, that, that felt so weird when I heard that. And in the actual film, what they settled for was a picture of Chris Sarandon in a wedding dress. That's what they did. That was their compromise. Um, but you know, it was also interesting because they had members of the gay community outside.
0: Yes, they had the they had, and they referenced it on the television news broadcast that like, um, gay groups were supporting Sonny, and then this these groups actually show up on site, and you know have signs that say "We love you, Sonny," and they're like out there, you know, supporting him. And Lumet interestingly <laughs> told us on this commentary that a very young harvey firestein was part of that crowd and you can't i didn't see him on screen i'm not sure if he's on screen but he was a teenager and and was part of that group
1: that's amazing i mean that's so amazing and he's an incredible actor such a good actor now speaking of good actors let's talk about this is probably my favorite moment in the film it's so real it's so funny the pizza guy. No, oh, the pizza guy. The pizza guy. You know, like he shows up and, you know, the police want to pay for the pizza. And Al Pacino's like, no, I'm, I'm paying for the pizza. And he
0: gives him some of the marked fives. Yeah, he gives them the
1: money, you know. And then it's like he can't open the door. And then the pizza guy opens the door for him. You know, and then like Al Pacino goes back inside, and there's like all this media attention, and then the pizza guy goes, "I'm a fucking star,"
0: <laughs> and he's so <laughs> yeah. jacked. Oh, he it.
1: is, he is. I I just think that it's incredible. Oh. I think it's incredible that that's uh that's how that scene played. Out. I'm a fucking star, and it's it's great because this is so relatable to now. It's like how close can you get to celebrity? It doesn't matter. <laughs> You know if it's a criminal it doesn't matter you know what they did it's just like how do you attach yourself to an event you know it's like hi mom you know and i mean we actually see that in the interview scene that uh Sonny has because in the background one of the other tellers are there and, and like i think they wave or something yeah. or kind of acknowledge the she camera does, yep. so it's just like you know they everybody wants to be a star is what we see and you know it, it's just so well done it's so well done. With, you know, that scene. And I love it because you can feel the excitement of this person, you know. And it's just, it's great. It's infectious. And it is like when you go outside of the bank in this, you are performing. You know, it's like. The roar of the crowd. What can you do? You know, Sonny starts throwing money around, and people keep going to grab it, and it's causing riots. We actually have Maria's boyfriend come and charge Sonny.
0: Yeah, he takes him down, like, knocks him to the ground.
1: Right? And then it's just, like, what's so wild is it isn't like the police take Sonny. I mean, they can't because they've already been told Sal is inside, and he will kill everyone if they take him. But they just, like, drag away you know Maria's boyfriend very roughly and throw him into a cop car, and then they apologize to Sonny about it. You mm-hmm. know, and it's like, oh yeah, his girlfriend is in there, and it's just like it's it, again, it's like you can feel the celebrity of Sonny in that moment.
0: Well, and that whips him up. Like the more he is encouraged and loved by the crowd. Mm-hmm the more he builds up his confidence, which in the end kind of turns out to be a problem, you know? Right. Because he's overconfident about what is going on and and thinks that he can actually get away with it. And he wants to, you know, he wants to believe that too. So it isn't just the crowd's support, but the crowd's support does kind of feed him.
1: I am surprised that they didn't actually kill... You know, the real-life Sonny wordsick as well, you yeah. know, in that. Um, the actual ending of the film, I mean, when he just sees Sal going away. He sees the people that he felt like, you know, were his new family from the bank, you know, separated from him. He's just all alone.
0: Mm, that ending.
1: Oh, man, It's hard. And, again, there's no music in this. And so the only thing you're left with are the sounds of the airport and this sounds like this airplane getting ready to leave
0: well and it really called back to heat yes for me yes it sure did because you know where does heat end at the airport with al vicino and a dead guy <laughs> you know yeah like uh of course it's a totally different situation different type of character You know he's a cop, and he and in this he's the criminal. Yeah, but he's broken. You have poor broken Al Pacino at the airport (laughs) in both movies.
1: Well, and again, it's it's like both films. You know, we're so close. Robert De Niro is so close to getting away. He's so close to getting away. And, you know, in this, I, I feel like, you know, they're, they're so close.
0: And again, you're rooting for Robert De Niro, at least somewhat. Yeah, you want him to get away. It's like, I think that
1: you you want he and Edie to make it because there is this love and you do feel like he can change, though. He's just shown us that he can't change by the fact that he had to go and kill Wayne Grow. So it's like, wow, ah, you know, it's. The, it,
0: but you've gotten to know him and you've gotten yeah. close to him. You're kind of like the bank workers in this, <laughs> you know, you're with him along on the ride so you want to see him accomplish it because he may not be a good guy but he's not as bad a guy as like you know some of these other bad guys and that's the case here too like i didn't want sal to die either right i mean that was really depressing because sal and I'll tell you why. I think it's really just because of that Wyoming part made him very endearing. Sure
1: did. And John
0: Cazale is very endearing in general. But in this and in Godfather, Fredo is a bit of a scumbag too, you know? Um. So you have this these characters that he's playing who may not be likable in a vacuum, but because John Cazale is playing them, they're super likable. And, you know, that whole Wyoming thing of him just being like a total idiot is endearing
1: well also in this they had to go to like a private section of the airport and in heat you know if you have a chartered plane i imagine that's like a different section of the airport as well and again you see those red and white you know kind of blocks those huge red and white jersey barriers which immediately makes me think about heat you know, because they run out and they're going around those red and white blocks. There's so much that we have in common, you know. And again, it's the flip. I mean, we have, you know, Al Pacino, who is a cop in Serpico, decidedly. Then we have Al Pacino in this, right, who is decidedly a criminal. And then he's with, you know, Robert De Niro, who John Cazale was with, you know, in his the final theory. film, Deer Hunter, right? Um, But, yeah, it, it just, it's like... I don't know. It it feels like it completes the circle to me somehow when I take a look at it through that lens and you can really feel this, this loss. Um, Yeah. In, in heat it's, I think, uh, I, I don't even know. I don't even know how to, how to like package this together at the end of heat. Okay you know, we've established Al Pacino as a hunter, Robert De Niro is the prey, okay? They do have this mutual admiration, they're friends, you know, they're, they're one of a kind, right? You know, it, well, they're like two of a kind, I should say. You know, there's no one else like them. Mm-hmm. So it's like the loss of your friend. You know what I mean? And it's gone. And it's so it's like Al Pacino has this loss of his friend with Sal, even though it's a newer friend, but that's such a traumatic situation. But
0: they're partners, and they've gone through this really you know, intense situation together. So even though they don't know each other at the beginning or, you know, they're just getting to know each other, it's like a trial by fire, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. And, and we know how that is, like, not because we're bank robbers. No, no, because, you <laughs> know. I remember
1: that bank you and I took down a few years ago out in Reno.
0: <laughs> but, you know, when... When people are in a situation together and it's like a high high tension situation, you kind of get to know each other better. I mean, uh, when you're in college, you know, you make friends so quickly, you know, because you're there for like this limited period of time and it's like such an intense time. And this is even condensed, you know, into one day, you know, that this happens. So he is truly alone at the end of this. He's the only one left, and it's, like, so heartbreaking, like, the way that Pacino plays it. Like, his face crumbles, and then he just puts his head down, and it's so sad.
1: Well, again, it is like Heat, because he is not going to stay together with Diane Venora. You know, that yeah. that's, you know, not going to happen, so he's completely alone. As he says in Heat, you know, he's only what he's going after, right? so it's just going to be another thing. It you know, they, they, it seems more like a perfunctory meeting with other officers than really just like hanging out on the reg, you know. Yeah. I mean in both films he ends up alone. I mean, he's on completely different sides of the law, but it's it, it's stuck. It, it's just like you're not moving forward past this point in either situation. And again, both films and at an airport.
0: Yeah.
1: It's weird. Well, how about this? Think about this. So it's like Al Pacino goes through this whole situation as a criminal. He has a dream in prison that he's a cop and that's heat. <laughs> and then he realizes if he's a cop, you know, he's on the outside, but it still isn't very good. Yeah. Oh. And he still loses his best friend. Well, there's one thing that I read. It was a Japanese interview and De Niro and Pacino were on there. And they were asked, would you rather play a cop or a criminal? And De Niro was like, you know, a cop. And Machino was like, I'd like to play uh, a cop who was also a robber. You know what <laughs> I mean? You know, so it's like, it, it's just like, yeah, he wants to dive in. He
0: wants, he wants to have to that make full it complicated. experience. He likes that. He likes yeah. the complexity. Well, I think that's true. He like, plays the complexity in this a lot. You know? He's a really good actor.
1: The best, yeah. best.
0: So before we wrap up, I just wanted to go back to the beginning again and talk about Marina, uh, the Elton John song. You know, we told the story of how that came about in the film, and it is the only music in the movie. Um, and I just think it's such a smart choice and such an odd choice also. I mean, this is one of my favorite Elton John songs. So for me, it's like I was really psyched to hear that song in this. Um, But it does bring up the question why and I know that the answer is because that's the record that Dee Dee Allen put on when she was editing the film but it also works on such an interesting level because it's like this pastoral kind of song that you know about these people in the country and they're in love and it's like this beautiful story and we're playing that over these city scenes that were just, like, quick and dirty shots, I think, that Sydney Lumet got all over the city, of just, like, this hot, nasty day, garbage in the street. Like, it's as far away from Amarina as you can get. Yeah. Um, and then we find out that this is the music that uh, Sonny is listening to in the car before the robbery, <laughs> which is so meaningful in my mind because it just shows you that Sonny longs to be in a different in a different situation you know he's like a romantic in a way
1: I could see that I I could definitely see that I mean the first line of the film is lately I've been thinking about how much I miss my lady Yeah. You know, and it's like, oh, you know, and again, that that can apply to his first or second wife. Yeah. You know, it's I I am imagining it's it's his second wife, Leon, because they haven't seen each other in a while.
0: Yeah, because she's been in Bellevue.
1: Right. And Um, we also have a very, you know, highly sexual component To the song Amarina. And if we break down Amarina. It's like amor. So it's like love. And Ina makes me think like little love or something. You know. And again we we have like these beautiful images.
0: Of happiness. Yes. Of of being able to be in love with the person that you love. Mm -hmm. And being happy. And that's something that's being denied. Sonny and Leon. They can't you know just. They've done as best as they can. To be happy and in love but the world won't allow it and that's kind of sonny's dream and it just fits in so well i freaking think it's brilliant
1: well and also amarina makes you think about you know 1800s not now so it's like you know a completely different place a completely (laughs) different time where you could be alone you know and you could just do your own thing like society may not like what you're doing but if you're by yourself in some cabin in the middle of nowhere Who's going to know? You get to live your life.
0: Um, Dog Day is really one of my favorite movies of all time. And for me, it is my top Al Pacino performance. But next week, we'll be going on to a performance that uh, many other people think is Al Pacino's best performance. The Godfather. Yeah. Which, if you're going to talk about prime movies and you don't talk about The Godfather... Even when you don't have a lot of listeners to your podcast, you're going to probably get some hate mail on that. <laughs> so,
1: Yeah, if you don't talk about, you know, The Godfather, when you talk about crime, you end up sleeping with the fishes.
0: Yeah, there's going to be a horse head in our bed. Like, I'm trying to avoid that.
1: I don't want any horse head in the no, bed. You know? I don't either. I'm yeah. an
0: animal lover, man. <laughs>
1: Me too. They (laughs) killed Bojack, man.
0: Yeah, no good. No (laughs) good. Oh, man. Um,
1: So we'll be back next week with The Godfather as we continue our Comfort Crime Month. As always, thanks for listening, everybody, and stay comfy.
0: Stay comfy.